You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And well, did you survive your Thanksgiving with relatives by avoiding politics at the dinner table? Or are you uh, no longer on speaking terms with, with the aunt or uncle of the opposite political persuasion? Well, hey, help may be on the way. Uh, my guest today is Diane Hessen, who's written a book that a lot of my listeners, I think, out there will find uh, uh, maybe a breath of fresh air. It's called Our Common Ground, Insights from Four Years of Listening to American Voters. This is somebody with experience in politics. This is really kind of a different way of, of aggregating and, and, and uh, analyzing voter opinion. And uh, I think it offers hope. And so I'm really glad, Diane, that you've uh, agreed to be a guest today. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks, Robin. So for our listeners, uh, I've read this book. I've got a lot of questions, but let's give a little background. What led you into this and and kind of talk a little bit about the different type of uh, this isn't traditional polling here and, and what makes it different and unique? Yeah, it isn't traditional polling. You know, I um, I'm not really a politics person. I spent most of my career doing market research for major brands you know, helping the equivalent of Coca-Cola understand their consumers or whatever else. And the company that I built did this in a non-traditional way. Instead of doing a poll or doing a focus group related to consumers, we built online communities of people who were kind of like a focus group on steroids. So you know, through the magic of technology, you no longer need to put 10 people in a room for an hour and have them try to impress you. You can have access to hundreds of people on a continuous basis and ask them questions whenever you want. And I had an opportunity in 2016 to take that technology and apply it to the political arena. And people kept saying to me, I don't know if this is going to work. I mean, it's against every market research principle there is to ask someone a question and then build a relationship with them. And the fun thing for me was the trick to me as a researcher in politics is how do you get people to tell you the truth? Because we know that as Americans, we lie to posters or pollsters or we want to sound good or we try to be impressive in the focus group. So how do you get someone to open up and tell you what they really feel about what's going on in the country, why they're truly voting for one candidate or another? And so the technology and building those ongoing relationships really helped just open that up significantly. And so I started doing that in 2016 and then uh, ultimately got so excited about it that I recruited a group of 500 Americans, all points along the political spectrum, every age, every ethnicity, every state. Um, uh, and essentially, 
I'm, well, actually, to be specific about it, every Tuesday morning, I would go on and say, hi, everybody. I hope you had a great weekend. And here is my question for the week. Sometimes it would be fill in the blanks. Sometimes I'd ask them to watch a video and tell me what they think. Sometimes I'd send them out to talk to their friends or send them out into their neighborhood to take a picture of political signs that they thought really resonated with them. And sometimes it was just a poll or a true false test or something. So I tried to keep it interesting, but these most of these 500 people stayed with me from the middle of 2016 all the way through to about six months ago. I'm still in touch with a bunch, uh, but you know, I, I got to really understand what was in people's hearts and minds uh, through a very tumultuous political time. Yeah, and and you know, for our listeners, as we know, this is the uh, the, the the Trump era where we've really uh, we we've always had partisanship and and uh, robust campaigns and differences, but this really seemed to put it on steroids, so to speak, on both sides. Um, yes. So it, it's interesting. Uh, as I started reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, here. But uh, and I, I always had a sense deep down that if you cut through, most people believe in kind of roughly the same things, uh, and that's that seems to be what you found here, uh, even on some really hot button issues. Yeah, Robin. Well, your intuition is great because what I kept learning time and time again, and the reason that I. Uh, entitled the book, Our Common Ground, is that at least when it comes to policy, there is generally just much more common ground than you would think in the U.S. I mean, if you ask voters about the issues, immigration, gun control, health care, infrastructure, and so on, you can get 80% of Americans to be willing to compromise on a particular solution. So, for instance, you can get 80% of our country to agree on an immigration bill that, you know, gives the dreamers a path to citizenship, builds a physical wall in some parts of the southern border, you know, increases humanitarian treatment for migrants, adds significantly more resources to screening and technology at our borders and so on. I mean, it might not be an ideal bill for everybody, but people would be fine with it. Um, and, you know, the bills don't pass. And part of the reason the bills don't pass is that many of our elected leaders are just better off with no resolution. I mean, it's easier to be a Republican candidate and scream and yell that immigrants are pouring into our country and if they elect you, you'll stop them. Or to be a Democrat and make the case for immigration and compassion and say that you'll make sure that no child is ever again put in a cage and so on. So sometimes the act of resolving the issues takes the talking points away. But you can find that common ground on policy uh, on a wide, wide range of issues. And it was always surprising to me. I mean, some of those Tuesday mornings, I would write to people and say, well, you're not going to believe it. But I asked you all about gun control last week, and I can't believe how many of you agree with each other. I mean, I thought it was going to be partisan. I thought it was going to be enormously divisive. And... There's a lot that you all agreed with. We just don't know that. I mean, of course, it's easy to blame the media. So um, how, so people, were people surprised that they agreed with with those on the other side? I mean, 
and and one of the things you talk about here, and I I think it's it's spot on, is how we see each other. We make assumptions uh, on how we see each other, and just by getting to know each other, maybe those assumptions aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, we have perceptions of quote the other side that are really inaccurate. You know, um, right now, if you ask most Republicans about the Democratic Party, they will say uh, Democrats are a bunch of elitist socialists who want to take my hard-earned tax dollars and give them away to criminals and illegal immigrants and people who are too lazy to work. They want to take away my guns and open up the borders and allow women to use abortions as birth control, and they want to completely dismantle policing. You know, if you ask most Democrats about Republicans, uh, they will say they're a bunch of, you know, hypocritical, uneducated, uncourageous deplorables who sleep with their guns and refuse to wear masks and who deny that climate change is happening and who never met a Black person they liked. And both of these are wrong, but these stereotypes were on the ballot in our country and they dominate our perspectives. You know, they dominate what we see in the media, um, you know, you know, the old saying, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And it is just much, you get a lot more eyeballs showing a white nationalist walking through a town in the United States than you do, you know, having a conversation with a Republican and a Democrat who agree with each other on a topic. And so media and then, you know, the, the TV stations and then, of course, social media just amplifies all of this. So you start to believe that the other side is just radical and insane, when in fact, I'd say at least 70 percent, maybe more of our country right now of voters would characterize themselves as moderates. So, yeah, I was going to talk about the role of the media in this because, I, I mean, we all know it, uh, social media especially, just seems to feed this. And the incentives are there, as you talked about, for the media to play this up uh, and and also for, uh, you know, in some ways, the gerrymandering and our primary system uh, almost feed uh, incentivize people moving out to the extremes where we don't get the people middle of the road that more, are more reflective of, of opinions uh, of most people. Yes. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I don't think you can blame everything on the media or everything on gerrymandering. Um, you know, look, we, but if you get messages that, you know, if you get messages that the other side is doing something that you just think is crazy, what it does lead to is this dynamic um, that in the book I call, you know, voting against versus voting for. Um, and you see that playing out all the time. So um, if, you, if you think about it, um, in, in 2016, in the beginning of my work, I was trying to understand why people voted for Donald Trump. And the number one reason was not that they thought that he was a really great guy. The number one reason is that they hated Hillary Clinton. You know, many people thought that she was totally corrupt and that, you know, they'd state this entire lifetime of, of questionable activities. You know, Whitewater, Vince Foster, Benghazi, 
stealing furniture from the White House. I mean, I can go on and on. And I would say to people, but, you know, those things have been proven to be, most of those have been proven to be untrue. Like, how can you say that? And people would say, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, no normal person has this whole smorgasbord of weird things going on. And so they voted for Trump against Hillary Clinton. Same thing. People who voted, many people who voted for Hillary Clinton voted against Donald Trump. It happened again in 2020. People, so many people who voted for John, uh, for Joe Biden just had had it with Donald Trump and vice versa. A lot of people voted for Biden. They weren't really sure whether he was their president of choice, but they were actually voting against Donald Trump. And you can pay attention to this also at the state level. I think the most prominent example of this was in Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin um, won his election um, because he basically, you know, his um, Terry McAuliffe, who was his opponent, made a statement about keeping the opinions of parents out of school curricula. Glenn Youngkin, who was relatively unknown, who was a finance guy um, out of the business world, basically took his entire campaign and made it a vote against keeping parents away from school curricula. And everyone voted against Terry McAuliffe just for that statement, just like they voted against Hillary Clinton, largely because she called, uh, you said, she said you could put half of Trump supporters into a basket of deplorables. That's one of the first chapters in my book, just about, just like Mitt Romney um, made that statement about, you know, not worrying about 40% of the country or whatever. And so, you know, voting against is very often what sends people into the voting booth. It certainly happened in this past election, you know, people just going in and saying, I'm, I, you know, I don't really like my candidate, but I'm voting against that other person. It hasn't always been that way, but the last time uh, I saw real voting for was Obama in 2008. People being so inspired by him as a candidate that they went to the polls to vote for someone. But very often it's just, I've got to get out there because the other guy, the other woman is definitely not someone who I want to have in office. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and I'm enjoying the conversation today with author Diane Hessen, who wrote our Common Ground Insights from Four Years of Listening to American Voters. It's a different way of measuring public opinion and a much more effective one. Um, she's talked a little bit about the book, and we just talked a little bit about negative partisanship, which has just increased in the last uh, 10 years. Um, I... I'm curious, uh, I, I, all my friends, uh, especially those on the left, uh, I'm not going to call them out by name, will say, but these people, look at this, look at this study. It shows the facts that shows this on climate or this on uh, guns or this or that. And you address that in this book, uh, which I think is a very interesting point, if you could share with our listeners. Um. Well, I'm I'm not sure exactly which thing you're pointing to, but I it might be that, you know, it's not like one side believes they have facts and the other side says they have emotions. You know, there if you Google, I mean, voter fraud is one of the greatest examples of this. 
you know, if you're a Democrat, you've got a lot of data on voter fraud, including the fact that 51 out of 53 lawsuits were thrown out uh, in the 2020 election when people said, you know, this Biden thing actually can't be true. He can't be president. And it's interesting because the people who feel that the 2020 election was illegitimate, they have seen that data. And you know how many of those people have changed their minds based on that data? Zero. And part of it is, it's not that people are sloppy intellectually. When I talk to people who believe that the election was fraudulent, which um, just true confessions, I don't. But when you, know, when you say to those people, instead of when they say, I think the election was fraudulent, instead of saying, oh, you're wrong, here's how smart I am, let me give you, you know, 25 studies about it. If you say, tell me more, it is fascinating what you learn. And one of the first things you learn is that the people who believe this have done a significant amount of homework and they have data and they have videotapes, you know, and they believe they have, you know, as much evidence of fraud as the people on the other side have, you know, that there wasn't fraud. There's also a lot of other interesting information you get when you say, tell me more, you find out that the biggest issues uh, for the people who believe there was fraud are related to mail-in ballots. It's not, it's not, oh, I think there was fraud because I love Donald Trump. It's, I think there was fraud because I believe that mail-in ballots where you don't have to demonstrate that you are actually the person whose name is on the ballot are subject to fraud. You know, some of it, Robin, is just, disrespect. You know, it's like, ooh, the Democrats said that the Russians hacked the election and that Trump was involved in it. And we created a commission and we put Bob Mueller in charge of it. And the government spent $35 million and we got a big, thick report. And when we challenge the legitimacy of, ele of an election, we get bupkis. You yeah. know, we get nothing. There's, yeah. there's no respect for all of us who feel a particular way. So it doesn't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily convince you that one that that fraud side is right, but it does help to take the to bring the temperature down and to understand right. what it's like to be walking in the shoes of other people. And the way the conversation goes, when when I try to be fair as you are and bring up these people feel that that uh, vote fraud and and uh, the, the legitimacy of the election, uh, they felt offended when people question the legitimacy of the 2016 election. When you yeah. say that, then they come back and say, well, they're not the same. Right. It's this lack of moral equivalence. Do you find that too, where, where one side is always saying that the, their position is more uh, serious, more important than the other side? Uh, it, it seems like yeah. a reluctance to admit that the other side has an equally valid point. I think, you know, and look, this is hard to do. I mean, it's hard to empathize with the side that you're not on, but it is interesting if you can just say to yourself, look, um, you're a Democrat, you think our democracy is at risk, that's a huge issue. If you just kind of say to yourself, do you think it's possible that the other side believes our democracy is at risk? Because the other side would say, you people think democracy is at risk, we can't even get our voting right. You know, or I remember at one point, um, I had uh, 240 people in my panel who voted for Donald Trump. And I would say to them, at one point, you know, the Washington Post was counting up how many lies uh, uh, Trump had stated. And at one point I said to them, doesn't it bother you, all this lying? And 
They would say the same thing time and time again, Diane, you don't understand. They all lie. They all lie. And then they would say, look at Obama, you can keep your health care, right? Look at Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. I mean, they go on and on. So that's a lot of it. If if there's something that really makes you crazy, um, saying the other side feels this is the same. And I think that's most important right now. I mean, if you look at last month, the electorate basically said to the country, I have outrage fatigue. I am sick of the radicals. I don't want the radicals on the left to be in office. And I don't want the radicals on the right to be in office. And everyone was saying that. So, you know, a a Republican is saying, not only do I hate left wing radical progressives, but I don't like them that way on the right either, you know, and vice versa. And so I think this is a really important dynamic and there is an opportunity here for people to come together and, you know, to kind of reject the insanity, you know, let's stop the madness is one area of common ground on any side. Yeah, I think I think it offers hope to those who are more middle of the road. Uh, these election results, as you said, and and uh, I think that's a good thing in getting where we need to be. The best analogy you gave, it struck me as I was reading this, um, how, and I think you're right, I think in the last 10 years, something has shifted in our politics, but we, we almost look now at political parties as sports teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a long-suffering Cub fan, even though they won the World Series, I mean, no matter how bad or dumb they were, you you're still going to turn them on and watch them. And and uh, I thought that was a, a great analogy on how our politics has become. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I you know I um part part of the year I live in Boston, and so you know as a New England Patriots fan, it's amazing because everybody in the country hates the New England Patriots except people in Boston. And um, when Tom Brady was accused of this big scandal that we called deflate gate, uh, it was interesting to be a person in Boston then just literally rejecting the data. Just like I accuse other people of doing now, you know, you're not looking at the data, but, you know, we rejected the data because it matters. You know, our, our football team matters. You know, it's one big pep rally. So I want to, we've got some time left here. I want to get to your ideas uh, for next Thanksgiving or this Christmas or whatever, when your uncle shows up, those listeners out there wearing a MAGA hat that you can't stand, or your other aunt shows up from a university town uh, in in an electric vehicle, uh, wearing a pride pride shirt or whatever. What's what's you've got some specific advice here on on how uh, how to approach this listening hard, (laughs) listening hard. Yeah. I mean, the last chapter of my book says, okay, so now you see where we're alike, where we're not alike, what people really care about, you know, and um, I I had mentioned this before, but I will tell you that when someone says, I believe X, Y, Z and you're ready to just walk away from the dinner table. It is really fascinating to say, okay, grandpa, so let me surprise you here. 
you believe this. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Where did you get that from? What's behind that? Um, you know, how, what's the journey that took place in your life that brought you to this moment? And I think those are really fascinating conversations to have because people's life stories, I have one voter, um, she grew up in Northwestern Idaho, just picture where Northwestern Idaho is. And she told me that not only were there no people of color where she grew up, there were no brunettes. She said, my town, everyone was blonde. I had never seen anyone different from me. And she went to Boise State University. And she said her eyes opened up. There were students there from every country in the world, every color hair, every color skin. And it completely changed her perspective. And of course, she talks about the journey of going home and being with her family and realizing how much her views about the world, about education, about politics had changed just from that experience, which her family didn't have. And so I think we really do need to just listen to each other. I think it very often will bring the temperature down. And if you say, grandpa, tell me more, at some point, grandpa might even say, well, actually you've been listening to me. I mean, what do you think? And uh, it's interesting to have those conversations. I mean, especially with people you care about. I mean, if, if, it's, if it's people you care about, you wanna invest the time, even if it's difficult to make sure you really understand what's going on for them. And to emphasize what you said, it is hard. I've tried it. It is hard. But but as you said, if you really care about people, you, you got to go the extra mile and trying to be empathetic and walking in their shoes a little bit. I have to close just by giving a shout out to uh, my my friend and, and our congresswoman here in Illinois, on the Illinois side of the river, uh, Sherry Bustos, who connected us and yeah. who was mentioned in your book and I think is a prototype of somebody who tried uh, to implement the things you did. And she's a good listener and always asked, I think, good questions of voters and tried to forge a middle of the road path. And I can tell you, sometimes she caught heat from both sides, but I think she tried to do that. And I think she would tell you that it, it was it was successful more times than not. Yeah, I mean, Sherry has been an extraordinary Congresswoman and she is a role model for politicians who are really, truly trying to you know, walk across the aisle and, and collaborate um, because I think she does understand a lot about how, you know, how every voter feels, you know, not just Democrats. Well, there's a lot, I, a lot I didn't get to, but I would encourage list, our, our listeners out there uh, in, in the Iowa and Illinois side uh, to get a copy of this book. I didn't, we didn't get to two of the hot button issues where people agree. You'll have to get the book to read that on abortion <laughs> and guns. It's very interesting. We, she, Diane touched on immigration, but uh Again, I, I, uh, if you get a chance, it's a, it'd be a great holiday gift for somebody or yourself. Uh, our Common Ground Insights from Four Years of Listening to American Voters. And again, listening uh, mm -hmm. is the key. Uh, Diane Hessen's been my guest. She's the author of the book. And I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Robin. My pleasure. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.